Fantasy Animation is a completely free, online, educational resource dedicated to examining the relationship between fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. It is staffed by a volunteer army of academics and animators who give up their time to run the website so that our audience can be kept informed not just about the latest goings-on in the world of all things that are drawn, imagined and sculpted, but to help inform them about the historical, political, ethical and aesthetic ramifications of what it means to make an animated fantasy. Check out our weekly blog posts containing insights on everything from the sexual identity of Spongebob Squarepants to how to make an animation on a pair of knickers. You can also access our archive of podcasts featuring Oscar-winning VFX supervisors, historians, classicists, animators and folklorists discussing their favourite examples of fantasy animation. To find out more, visit us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Reddit at FanAnimResearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research, or visit fantasy-animation.org. I hope you enjoy the show. Again, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. I am, as always, Alex Sargent, and I am still uh, Chris Holiday. Temporal, appropriate, I believe. Yes. Today we're talking about Arrival, um, a sci-fi movie from the last uh, few years that met with a lot of critical acclaim upon its release. Um, the movie charts the sort of study of a scientist trying to communicate with an extraterrestrial life form or a group of them um, and mediates on the nature of language, time, the human experience um, and subjectivity. And, and it's got some cool kind of twirly uh, tentacled aliens and some fun special effects along the way. So I've got plenty um, to talk about as a fantasy uh, scholar, Chris. Uh, anything VFX related for us to talk about this week? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I had uh, a few little notes around kind of heptapods as master animators um, and kind of links, some interesting links as I was watching the film, kind of harking back to sort of the way that Felix the Cat might use use his body as part of this sort of, you know, modern uh, trickster figure. Um, so some nice sort of parallels there. But yeah, a few little things jotted around. Uh, I watched a few makings of in terms of the VFX uh, and yeah, stuff around the post-human and, and kind of monstrosity, which is sort of, uh, I suppose, a nice cue in to the, to the guest we've got today as well. Absolutely. And we're only a minute or so in and you've already mentioned Felix the Cat, so you're earning your crust for this week. Um, but we have a, a, a very special guest. I feel like I say that every time, but but we'll definitely emphasise the very because uh, listeners uh, to the podcast will already know our guest because we mention him all the time. Um, but we have William Brown here um, to talk to us about Arrival, who is an independent scholar and honorary fellow for the School of Arts at the University of Roehampton. Uh, Will is a prolific writer on lots of different aspects of VFX culture. Um, his book, uh, Non-Cinema Global Digital Filmmaking in the Multitude, um, is, is a really uh, interesting text examining the limits of cinematic culture. Uh, and of course, Super Cinema, Film Philosophy for the Digital Age, which is a well uh, uh, well-cited text on this podcast itself and his most recent project um with uh, co-written with david h fleming the squid cinema from hell uh william thanks so much for coming on the podcast thank you enormously for having me uh what a great introduction and uh, i'm very excited to be here Oh, that's great. Excitement is what we need uh, because uh, because we're <laughs> lacking it after a long term's worth of teaching. So um, we 
we reckon we could come at this film from a number of different angles. Um, we, we, we actually, in the last episode, we're talking about the, um, the TV Netflix series Dark, and I think we could perhaps almost do a sister podcast right now about the representation of, of time and the, role, the relation between science fiction and science um, that this film certainly posits. We could talk about gender, we could talk about the stardom of Andy Adams, we could focus on um, Denis Villeneuve and the sort of you know, star-making director vehicle this was for him. We could talk about the VFX or the kind of lack of emphasis on VFX in the movie, despite the, lo- the lots of VFX and digital filmmaking in the movie um but i'd like to start by talking about squids if you don't mind um because i think perhaps this is a new angle we could come at the movie um tell us about squids william and why they're interesting in relation to both uh, cinema in general but also arrival what a question um so i'm delighted to have asked it uh well david fleming and i uh and i'll also probably i'm sure at some point be referring to some of david's individual work uh, um, as well, because he's he's a big arrival scholar, um, probably even more than I am. Uh, not probably, certainly even more than I am. But um, uh, we both have spent a long time thinking about it. It was probably arrival that got us into uh, writing a book on what we've called the squid cinema from hell. But it's actually about cephalopods more generally uh, in relation to cinema, and not just earthly cephalopods, octopuses, squids and cuttlefish, but also alien cephalopods, hence uh, we engage with Arrival. Um, We were at a conference a few years ago and a bunch of people kept doing papers on Arrival uh, and um, we just realised that it brought together a lot of our interests in time and I guess the digital and um, it kind of uh, we started thinking, well we'd initially thought well we're going to do this book on mud and cinema which we're still planning on doing, uh, and we have kind of lots of ideas developing for that. But we just realised that um, we kept coming back to tentacles, basically, and so wrote this book. What's the link between tentacles, squids, and cinema? Um, I mean, for a start, I think that the there's there's a history. Um, sort of these kinds of monsters or creatures have consistently been in films from. The early days, uh, we've uncovered for our book a few kind of early serials, uh, The Trail of the Octopus. Also, there's a Flash Gordon uh, episode uh, in which uh, the hero comes across a bunch of sort of octopus-like creatures on a distant planet um, through to stuff like Arrival um, and numerous others. And in fact, uh, a few filmmakers, Denis Villeneuve being one of them, uh, Park Chan-wook being another, keep coming back to kind of squids, tentacles, octopuses, these kinds of things in their films. And um, and so we just tried to sort of work out, well, what is the meaning of all of this? And I suppose in a lot of ways, um, what we came to conclude is you know, that these creatures are in effect intelligent aliens uh, that live on our planet with us. Uh, many people say they're about the closest that you could get to an alien without having to leave our planet. There are some crazy theories that in fact they may be aliens and perhaps we can get into that at a later point over the course of this discussion. So it's about the kind of confrontation with otherness, um, which I should probably signal already in the work that David and I, and I myself sort of solo and I guess David solo are, are doing uh, of late. Uh, we think that this relates in a very political way to um, engagements with kind of racial otherness uh, and I think that it's there in Arrival and we can perhaps talk about that um, over the course of, of events today and 
almost certainly a sort of sexual illness. You mentioned gender. Um, you know, I think that there is um, a way in which um, there is uh, sort of a, a bounding up of the squid and the octopus with the feminine, and that also has a history within psychoanalytic discourse. And and I think it's also tied up with the digital. Um, what we found in our research was that in the sort of early years after the Second World War, a marine biologist called John Zachary Young, who was based in Naples, uh, and who'd been working on the octopus brain, was invited to use his research in order to help develop early artificial intelligence uh, software. And so, in effect, in, in a kind of media archaeological sense, uh, we basically chart how uh, the cephalopod, the octopus, the squid, is actually at the root of and maybe the basis for much of the digital technology that we have today, networks, undersea tentacles that are connecting us with fiber optic cables and so on. And so if we understand these intelligent aliens, by which I mean cephalopods, then perhaps we're in a better position to understand the digital uh, than thinking of the digital simply as a kind of human uh, human invention or something that replicates a human way of being. In fact, it has its own uh, cephalopodic way of being. And this is one that is based much more upon a kind of like distributed intelligence, tentacularity, uh, and a different conception of time, which I think we see being worked out in Arrival, as well as many other octopus films. I mean, I've... I've... Uh, all of the, the, the when we cited, I mean, we made a joke. Alex made a joke at the start of the, of the podcast around um, sort of this is fantasy slash animation slash William Brown um, in in lots of ways and in lots of episodes where we encounter your work on the on the digital and that's really where I, I guess I'm coming from and some of the things you were saying um, and sort of connecting some of the dots because you said right at the very beginning that you went back as part of your process to find these examples in different in different media and different in different kind of examples um, and so I guess from a practical question is that is that also the history of sort of effects is did you enter it with the sort of special effects hat on was this a sort of um psychoanalytic hat that you were wearing obviously your work is sort of film, um, film philosophy for the digital age but um i guess i know you as a vfx scholar in, in and i know alex will know you in a slightly different way and, and and i guess yeah from a practical perspective was this was this journey back through through cinema as you try and find these examples of, of the squid and re, or, or the the um, cephalopod and find that it's such a durable image? Was part of that also this this is an interesting itself little history of 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 the way in which special effects have worked in cinema, culminating in you know in something like like Arrival, which which actually plays very reflexively around what we expect digital monsters in movies to to look like, and actually the power of Arrival is you're like when are they arriving? Actually, I was it's like 32 minutes in and I was I was promised a squid. What's happening? Um, but I guess, yeah, was this journey back through through um, through the representation of, of cephalopods? Was this something that kind of piqued your interest as a, an effects scholar or was this kind of combined with your, the other hats that you that you wear? It's a very good question. I think the honest answer is it probably came out of a combination of things. Um, I mean, you, yeah, I feel there's so much to say that the. The arrival, if we try to focus on arrival, um, Derrida, there we go, that's always the good start of a pretentious sentence, has uh, this sort of notion when he writes about hospitality of the arrivant, uh, that which doesn't sort of, it's, it's arriving, I guess, would be the most literal translation. 
So it's not someone who arrives, it's not someone who's arrived, it, it's sort of about the process. But he talks about this as being, and, and Timothy Morton takes this up in his writing on hyperobjects, that this is about the kind of the strange stranger, or the strangest, or the stranger stranger. And, um, and so it is about kind of like the, the concept of otherness is, is bound up in the notion of arrival, something that arrives. And so for me, I think there's a way in which, I guess particularly since I mentioned Morton, a way in which this is bound up with a kind of ecological component. It's about our understanding, perhaps on a psychoanalytic level, or at least we could read it through that filter, uh, through that lens of how we encounter the world as a whole, or the universe as a whole, uh, or the multiverse as a whole. Um, and so, and, and what, what is that to us when it, it arrives? And there is something that's already aquatic about that. If we were to sort of break arrival down into its French roots, we have this sort of notion of a rive. Rive is, is the bank or the shore. And so to, to come a rive is to arrive on the shore. So this is about the emergence of something out of the water in some senses in, in this sort of notion of arrival. So there's this sort of ecological aspect which is at mind, and I think that that probably is there in super cinema. I'm beginning to think about it, but I think I was taking it more, um, you know, it's like, well, you know, Hollywood and this digital stuff, there is something really interesting going on here, and we should take it seriously. And actually, you know, it, it is telling us some stuff that we may not necessarily think that we would normally get out of a Hollywood film. Um, and, and I'm... I'm going to say I'm very sort of proud of super cinema in a lot of ways, but I also would come down quite harshly on it in for various different reasons these days. In particular, I think uh, when read through the critical race lens um, that I hadn't really developed as part of my uh, sort of intellectual arsenal, for want of a better sort of phrase at that point in time, but which I've been working on much more in the last few years and which the Squid Cinema Project was definitely part of uh, helping to develop and David and I have a, a new book coming out which is called Infinite Ontology and it's about streaming shows. We don't talk about dark although we've, we've seen dark and we think that it you know definitely relates to what we're, we're, we're talking about uh, and, but it's much more focused on on the kind of racial dimensions of the digital and the quantum and so on and so forth. Anyway so my point being I guess in answer to this sort of question is that it's a kind of coalescence of of all of these things but I do think, actually, when you were asking the question, Chris, that um, it did make me think that actually the the virtual camera, which I write about in that Beowulf essay, and which you know I th write about in in relation to various films, I guess this kind of highly liberated camera. If we were to think about what its physical form might take, I've written that maybe it's gaseous, but in other ways it could be a kind of tentacle. Maybe the film that comes to mind is Donnie Darko where we have this kind of like single tentacle that emerges out of Donnie's uh, stomach as he realises his journey through time in, in that particular film. And, and this is the kind of the key digital effect, I think, in, in that film. And it is sort of about how, oh yeah, if we follow these trails, these are kind of tentacles that weave us in a non-linear fashion through time. And that is what VFX are, and perhaps in some ways. So um, it, I, think, I think probably you're onto something that is that could be developed into something really interesting um, that is latently there in my work, but I think which you're drawing out in a much more uh, interesting and uh, conscientious fashion.
Oh god, don't uh, give that, him, that, don't give that, him that, compliments. I've got to, I'll have to. No, no, that does. Um. That doesn't sound that doesn't sound true. No, I mean the, the gaseous element of, of the virtual camera, and, and we've talked about this on previous podcasts. The sort of the, the kind of post-human qualities. And I remember reading. I think it's the analysis of the second X-Men and the introduction of Nightcrawler and the way in which the the the, the kind of gaseous digital and and. Um, kind of I guess works in relation to the cut and, and redefines the issue of the shot and but I really like that idea that we think of the virtual camera as this kind of gaseous um, entity or non-entity that moves through the digital or virtual space and and actually this idea of the tentacular seems like a really interesting way of thinking through the positionality of of, of kind of the digital because the digital is is because it sort of looms large and is everywhere I think what's what's kind of striking about uh, a, a book like the squid cinema from from hell is is trying to find new ways of thinking about something that's there seemingly all the time and sometimes is invisible and then sometimes isn't and and different kind of frameworks for understanding something and um or something like the digital that pulls cinema in lots and lots of different different directions and 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 so i yeah i was coming to arrive all new and and as we're as we're kind of talking i can see how it fits perfectly with with some of the things around the digital and digital technology and the relationship between the digital and and um i guess the non-digital or the photographic that i'm that i'm kind of interested in i mean i'm interested in what alex is going to say about fantasy in all of this vfx business well, well i think the, the way to perhaps get into into issues of fantasy in relation to what we're talking about perhaps is to sort of allow a rival to arrive a bit and and think about how any of this sort of relates to sort of the, 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 the sort of story arc and things. And, and I guess I was struck by what you were saying, William, about sort of um, the relationship between, you know, uh, the tentacular, uh, the digital, um, and I would, and the, and, and othering and otherness. Uh, and I guess I'd throw into that, given that this is a sort of, as much as it is quite a cerebral movie in many ways, it's also quite um, a, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a Hollywood popcorn movie in other ways it's a film designed to entertain um, and it does it largely through its sort of um, promise of spectacle and promise of the fantastical yeah this is a this is as much a rip-roaring yarn as it is a philosophical mediation on on any of these things and uh, the way it combines both is perhaps its strength so I wondered if you had any thoughts on sort of the relationship that the film posits between those those three things i guess the sort of the, the other the other nature of what you're talking about and how the film draws on this this kind of imagery and how that kind of is used in the movie to to do something fantastical and spectacular because i'm struck by what you're saying in the sense that when i think back to sort of pioneer sort of you know really kind of entry-level fantasy theorists um fantasy is always well the fantastic as a sort of wider impulse is always spoken about as a kind of an impulse towards otherness. Yeah, now, uh, Todorov is sort of the founding text on this, and Todorov is, a, you know, a narrative structuralist theorist, and his, you know, his, his his thing is the thing undergraduates won't stop quoting at me, which is the whole narrative, you know, equilibrium, disequilibrium, equilibrium again. And his argument is sort of that the fantastic is always, can only be ever be rooted in disequilibrium, because it's only in disequilibrium that the fantastic can articulate itself. So I wonder if there's a if there's a there's a link to bring those things in that the fantastic is othered, um, and that might have some really interesting racial but also technological connotations in terms of as we kind of stir the stir the the, the soup that is um, all these interests we're playing with here. Um, I'll definitely take us, I think, in the direction of the racial uh, in a kind of in in my response to this. A uh, really interesting 
set of ideas that uh, Alex is bringing in. I, I might just return briefly to something Chris said, though, which is the discussion of, of Nightcrawler. Um, whilst there's definitely a gaseous component to Nightcrawler in X2, there is also a cephalopodic component to it. Um, I think I, <laughs> even though I wrote this a long time ago, I still kind of remember describing it in terms of kind of ink and so on. And the cephalopod, the octopus, the squid, the cuttlefish, I guess, very much so, are very much kind of linked to chromatophoric display. They change colours for the purposes of camouflage. So we talk about, oh, it's always there, but we can't see it. That's exactly what a cephalopod often intends to be the case, both when it's hunting and when it's hiding. Uh, and then this kind of like, you know, and the cephalopod also produces ink in order to kind of mask itself. And these kind of like inky plumes, which we often have coming off the side of digital special effects, give a kind of gaseous, cloudy quality to things. But it's also a bit like, you know, ink in water as well. They're, and they're very similar, these sort of cloudy uh, images that we get. And, and we have, you know, in Independence Day, as well as in Arrival, um, you know, this sort of link with the cloudy of the cloudy with the alien particularly when they first get here and so we have this sort of sense of the weather what in french they call temps le temps the time you know uh, being this is the weather is kind of like why do we always talk about the weather because it is a marker of change it is becoming it is sort of something that's always going on and, and, and shifting uh, and often unpredictably, as anyone in the UK knows very well, and certainly where I'm based now, Vancouver, it's also very unpredictable weather. So, um, you know, there's the sense in which these, this sort of, this imagery is simultaneously cephalopodic as well as in inverted commas natural, and it, it has this kind of plumage. We talk about the cloud in relation to the digital as well as this sort of fantasy space where things are held, which is, is almost certainly a complete fantasy. Uh, because it relies upon very real data banks, which are made up of very real minerals, which have been mined by very real people, mainly non-white, out of the earth in order to kind of house these things. So perhaps relating this to what Alex was saying, that this this impulse to otherness, thinking about it as Alex was saying it, this sort of Todorovian philosophy, which is a bit like a Hegelian in its own way, a sort of Hegelian thesis, antithesis, synthesis, mm -hmm. equilibrium, disequilibrium, kind of return to equilibrium. So it's, it's in some ways in Todorov, it's a return rather than a synthesis. But, it, you know, it's one that can't discount what's happened. Mm -hmm. Both of these are this are sort of an, are an, an inherently conservative uh, philosophy. They're kind of about the restoration of what was. Let's make America or whatever it may be great again. The concept of again is kind of like very much at work in these, return. Uh, I mean, a couple of things to think about then. One, I think that, um, you know, we can challenge this and this might be a specifically sort of white set of philosophies. It's kind of like, well, let's, let's acknowledge the other, let's have the other chaos, whatever it may be, interrupt everything, but then let's return to normal. So if we read this sort of psycho, uh, psychopolitically today you know let's enjoy black lives matters for uh, a few months a year maybe 
Uh, and now then, okay, we've had enough of that. Let's go back to normal. There's equilibrium followed by disequilibrium. Now let's return to equilibrium. Um, you know, there was a thesis, then there was an antithesis. We'll have a synthesis, which may be a kind of like within the academy. Let's have a renewed emphasis on hiring scholars from ethnic minorities, uh, BAME scholars and so on, which I think is I'm fully in uh, in support of in many ways. But I think if that is simply a measure to stave off the kind of the fuller revolution, then I also don't think that it's enough. And I think that if people think that it's enough, then I'm in disagreement with them because inherently I don't think that's enough, Sadie says this white guy to two other white guys. <laughs> In a, in a sort of geeky, forgive me, sort of podcast situation. But either way, um, you know, I think that there's sort of something going on there. And I think that this is kind of wrought in many ways in um, in Arrival, um, in its kind of unspoken racial politics, as well as its kind of like implied racial politics. Um, and David here writes, I think, very cogently about Forrest Whitaker's role in the film. Uh as the as this uh, black uh, army figure, so who's kind of like who's in some senses the cast as the villain. He's not the villain, but he's the kind of like the guy who sort of impedes their progress, even though he's actually caught between two, you know, the white masters who are telling him what to do, and then Banks and Donnelly, Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner's characters who who are trying to. Uh, get around him. I guess Michael Stuhlbarg's character also is, is sort of representing uh, Weber's, uh, Forrest Whitaker's kind of boss in some ways. So these are, um, you know, he's kind of like cast in this impossible position of blackness uh, that is a kind of compromised blackness and not blackness for itself. But then we compare this to the aliens who, and I this probably be a sort of controversial reading, but rewatching Arrival yesterday, I was where Louise is sort of beginning to dream in heptopod uh, language. I can't remember if it's A or B, but she's beginning to dream in, in heptopod. And she looks at what we think is her interlocutor is Renner, uh, the Jeremy Renner's character, um, Donnelly. And actually it's a heptopod in the room. But it looks like a big black hand that's kind of like there in the room. And so there is this, I think there's this way in which the film... And we could also relate its primary uh, Montana setting to the American frontier, the clearing of space for the creation of a white America that involved the eradication and genocide of Native Americans, as well as then the film's uh, treatment of a, a growing Chinese uh, and weirdly Sudanese sort of coalition of others within the film as sort of primary threats. Then actually it kind of ends up having this sort of quite weird racial politics that's going on within the film that it's sort of about wanting to in uh, wanting to create a new equilibrium out of an engagement with the racial other the alien as racial other that's kind of well worn trope within science fiction uh, both literature and film uh, as well as then but like all of these sort of coming back to establishing a kind of a new status quo 
uh, it's the anxiety of white humans. Uh, so it, it's an expression of white supremacy in some ways. Then it's about the anxiety of white humans in the face of their own dissolution because of their own pernicious practices. But it's also kind of doubling down in an attempt to appropriate everything that it can. Oh, the aliens, these blacks, they're here to give us a kind of uh, an attempt to kind of understand the universe. And if we listen to them, we can basically take advantage of that for ourselves. Um, and and there's something deeply problematic about that, I think. You know, we think about the end of the world as being this thing that's emerged in the white Western imagination of late. But the end of the world happened 500 years ago, uh, you know, for Africans and for Native Americans. And the end of the world's been happening and has been going on for 500 years. And as we begin to understand our own sort of sense of the end of our own world, we naturally look to these other epistemologies um, and these others in order to get a sense of kind of like, well, what, how do we cope with this? And, and so there's this kind of like, even if, even when it's well intended, well, let us learn from these other epistemologies. Let's turn to Native American discourses. Let's turn to critical race theory, black studies and so on in order to find the conceptual tools that we need to understand yeah. the current moment, including the digital. And it was all there in kind of like Afrofuturism, uh, as well as kind of all being there in Afropessimism. Nonetheless, there's still something problematic about this because this could still be a kind of a, a very typical attempt by kind of like the white Western imagination to mine, to appropriate and to perpetuate itself in the face of and to continue the destruction of these others. Bit of a rant. I, I, I apologise. No, you don't need to apologise. I would like now to talk about the Richard Curtis movie about time. Uh, because yeah. because it came to mind whilst rewatching Arrival last night, and I hadn't I'd seen it once uh, at the cinema, and I liked I liked it, and I still I still like the movie, but I didn't like being reminded about about time because because uh, it isn't a good film. Uh, sorry, all uh, apologists for that that thing out there, but it reminded the end of Arrival reminded me of that film because. Uh, and it and it and I, and I mentioned it because of what you were talking about there about sort of the film uh, confronting both the Amy Adams character and the spectator with this attempt to see time differently. And I was the first viewing, I was kind of taken, I was more emboldened by that message, and I thought it was really you know kind of fun that the film kind of does formally what the character supposedly goes through right and that the film you know on a second viewing you can watch the film in a slightly less linear manner and and see you know there's that almost opening gag where we see something that in the first viewing we're expected to think of as a memory and um and amy as his voiceover says i used to think uh this was the beginning of the story and of course you know if you rewatch the movie the film is palindromically structured i mean tenet um, you know, eat your heart out. This, you know, this film kind of you could watch it back to front supposedly, and it would still work the same way. So that you know, the film is on one level trying to get us to think outside of linearity, um, and we could talk, we could have a lovely psychoanalytic discussion about sort of you know Lacanian discourse and syntax and how it buggers everything up and is the soul, the, the, you know, the, the the cause of all trauma if we so wished, um, or we could talk about about time in the um, in the. It, what it reminded me of is that actually the, the conclusion of the film isn't isn't to live outside of linearity, it's to it's to be possessed with 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 foresight and still live in a linear world. Because in the end, what Amy Adams chooses to do is exactly what Donald Gleason's character chooses to do in, in About Time, which is that he lives she lives her life through fantasy through what the visions that the aliens give her, so she knows what's going to happen, and then she gets to enjoy 
every moment and that sort of you know again as, as you mentioned sort of capitalist um, connotations of enjoyment uh is there so actually the film the film as much as it's it it proposes to offer us a form of a way outside of linear thinking and makes a pretty decent argument for linear thinking being the cause of sort of all human problems it nevertheless actually offers us a sort of you know super linearity a linearity where we so know what's going to happen we so know where the story's going that we get to enjoy it more along the way um i don't know and i think that probably feeds into what you're saying well i don't know if you have any thoughts on that or not as far as your in, enjoyment in yeah. both commas of about time mm. is concerned sure um i've only seen it once uh, which was i think enough and I don't remember it that well. Although, yeah, now that you mention it, of course, there's a kind of like choose death sort of component to that, um, which is sort of slightly weird in Arrival because it's sort of choose your child's death. I mean, there's something about that. You know, I think I think we need to understand that, you know, we are going to die. I mean, you know, there is a sort of good grippling, grappling with mortality but it's a grappling with mortality that's based upon this kind of very individualistic sense of death as being, uh, you know, deeply destructive, whereas there could be completely different ways of viewing death as simply kind of uh, a part of becoming. And, you know, the self as such, you know, is dissolved, but it becomes part of a kind of a, a much wider or greater sense of sense of self. I mean, it, it, I think kind of psycho... Again, kind of in this thinking about the Sapir Wharf hypothesis, perhaps because it's brought up in Arrival, this idea that language structures the way in which we think. You know, maybe it's no coincidence that Amy Adams and Rachel McAdams uh, are in these films, these women who are the son of the first man, Adam, uh, you know, who therefore, in effect, come to express this kind of white purity of, of femininity. And they both sort of un coincidentally have this kind of like European, Anglo Saxon almost heritage or Celtic kind of heritage going on in their appearance, then Fleming's looked up some great websites where they actually sort of list these things. And, you know, this relates to this idea, you know, the same, I'm I, thinking of another sort of recent film, First Man, Damien Chazelle's film, Damien Chazelle, a kind of a great plier of, of whiteness in the face of blackness and whitesplaining to blacks, jazz music and so on. Uh, you know, Damien Chazelle's First Man, you know, obviously the first man, because there was no man before the first man who set on foot on the moon. The only man who counts as a man is the white man who set foot on the moon and everyone else is not really a man is doing it because of his dead daughter. Or at least that's how the kind of like, I mean, I, I'm, there's no disrespect to kind of Neil Armstrong as a historical figure, but the, the film's narrative kind of brings up that this is all motivated by the dead daughter, basically. So this is a sort of conquest of space is a desire to kind of like oppose time to kind of bring back from the dead to basically stave off this thing called death, which has been fetishized as this kind of like other, and which is associated with the other, what Ashil and Bembe calls necropolitics, which is kind of linked in some ways to the necro, to the negro, to blackness, to negativity, which perhaps has a kind of very cinematic logic, whereby in, in, in photography and cinema, the negative is... And the black is kind of perceived as the opposite of the white. There's this kind of like structurally oppositional logic within these media, these very influential media, which make us think about, um, you know, these things in a very particular way. So uh, to think about Arrival, it's struggling whether or not it succeeds. And I suppose ultimately I don't think it quite does 
Arrival is trying to get us to think in, well, what would it be like to think like a cephalopod? What would it be to think in this distributed way? Well, we would absolutely have a completely different sense of time because of this this way in which, I mean, not just in terms of like, oh, here's a, a message from my finger which goes up to my brain supposedly and which processes it. It's not about sort of a linear chronology necessarily in that sense, but it is about how basically if you're experiencing everything at once, so my, my fingers are thinking, touching, synesthetically sort of smelling, uh, seeing, and all these things, which is how an octopus senses, then we be, if it's everything at once, spatially, then it might also be everything at once temporally as well. And so it, it sort of makes some kind of logical sense that this sort of other way of thinking, perhaps which is the cinematic, the cephalopodic way of thinking, is to see all time at once. And it's the kind of white Western mythology. It is the construction of narrative itself, the hero's quest, the kind of Todorovian equilibrium, disequilibrium, equilibrium again, which even if it's circular is also kind of like attempting to sort of create this sort of linear narrative progress through things. This is this is the kind of white Western mythology. In fact, if we look outside of here, outside of sort of the white West, and we look at other epistemologies, you know, we can see how the nonlinear was always there. There's this way in which this kind of molluscian soft being is there within, you know, the black slave who's been discarded into the ocean and whose bones have dissolved and who now is just a kind of non-bony invertebrate figure, kind of like a sort of squid or octopus under the water. And, and so that the this sort of and, and that the arrival, therefore, is, is in some senses not not just now the arrival of the whites in the Americas, it is also the arrival of or the, or, or the arrival of the, of the black other. On the topic of soft beings, this is where I can talk about Felix the cat, because this is this. I was struck at what you were saying earlier about ink. Um, uh, Felix the cat. So Patricia Vettel Tom has written on Felix the cat as this, this kind of modern trickster and, and says at one point, Felix is anything more than he really is, the pen and ink um, creation um, of a human artist and, and talks a lot about his sort of uh, the way that his body metamorphoses and, and it, it changes in volume, in density. His tail becomes a question mark. His tail becomes a cane and all these kinds of things. Um, so this question of sort of soft beings that everything's already there, that this body of Felix the cat seems to be charged in a way that means when he re when he returns back to his cat form, his feline form, it's never really a return. It's or in in the way it's not really kind of linear in the way that we might we might think of the return. It's some, there's something else going on here that, that his outline is always open to change. It begins to kind of move and flex. Um, we often see in a lot of the the early Felix the Cat cartoons the manipulation of ink, and we never and a lot of these early animated characters jump out of the ink well, and that's part of their sort of playful ontology. We know that they are pen and ink, and and what they can do and what 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 their kind of bodily spectacle is on screen is very much always anchored to the fact that they are always ink in a pot that became something else. Um, so while you were talking about soft beings, I was thinking about the kinds of narrative and imagery that overwhelm a character like Felix the cat that Felix the cat is is this blob of potential ink uh, that then moves in a particularly tentacular way but yeah I, I, I think soft soft be we, we would I suppose if, if I was in a, a class talking about animation history I'd talk about plasmaticness and Eisenstein and Disney at this point but um, I remember having conversations with Alex where if everything is if, if plasmatic describes everything that's fluid, then nothing is plasmatic at all, and and we should find other ways of thinking about animated bodies that move and contort and, and reshape and in, in different kinds of ways. So I quite like this idea. This, the inky quality 
it's, it's really important to, to Felix the Cat in a way I hadn't really thought about and obviously links up with the way that you described um, the heptapods and, and, the, and the way that ink moves as a form of communication. Very good. I love it. I mean, uh, so many things again to think of. I mean, I think Sean Cubitt writes about plasma mm-hmm. uh, and the way in which, um, you know, plasma is this kind of new mean, new medium. Uh, but in particular, I think it's the controlling of plasma. Plasma is this kind of like chaotic sunlight substance, but which we have to bottle inside screens. Uh, in, in the Squid Cinema book, David and I talk a, a fair amount about kind of the process of bottling as being a very kind of like human one, the sort of creation of glass is a very human one. And actually it's liquid flowing wildly and uncontrollably everywhere, which is the nature of the universe, but which is of great kind of like uh, fear to humans, the kind of the Rorschach stain, uh, the kind of like the unknowing and unknowability. It, it perhaps is also about I hate to say this, the kind of like the flowing of blood of, of menstruation, this kind of like this uncontrolled flowing of kind of like inner ink and blood is antithetical to and abhorrent to kind of patriarchal modernity. And, and so it has to be kind of like stopped and bottled. And, and instead, we kind of like we, we bottle everything up. And I think just sort of riffing, I guess, a bit off the out of the inkwell stuff, you know, what's crucial for the out of the inkwell is the idea of the hand being in the image. So we have this kind of haptisty in there as well, but it is also about the kind of like the controlling of the ink. It's not the ink spill, the blood spill. So there's this kind of logic of kind of like absolutely having to control this kind of like plastic otherness and or, or, or plasmatic otherness. And Zakir Iman Jackson has just written a book called Becoming Human. And, you know, that's about how uh, blacks in kind of white imagination are treated not as subhuman, although they are, but also often as superhuman. But basically this points to a kind of like a plasticity in the white imagination regarding blackness. It's It becomes plastic. It, blackness is a shape that we can just control and manipulate into being what we want. So it's sometimes subhuman, sometimes superhuman, but it's never human. And that's kind of like crucial because the human, the first man, the man on the moon, is always the kind of the white man and, and the rest is sort of relegated outside of that. So... I think that there's kind of like this sort of idea of manipulation, the control of, of, of the chaotic liquid that otherwise is informe in this sort of bataille language, shapeless, like a soft molluscian invertebrate sort of octopus. It doesn't actually have a shape. It's this kind of like floppy, shapeless thing, horrible for us, linked in the kind of psychoanalytic language to, to the feminine. You know, it has to be controlled. Because if the human is first man and it's got to be white man on the moon, uh, worried about his dead daughter, then we're fucked. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so essentially the battles that were had uh, in the kind of 10s and 20s around, in these animated cartoons around the, uh, the animated character as ink and the hands that seek to control it and Donald Crafton writing about the hand of the artist trope that's this overhang of the lightning sketch tradition and, and so forth and, and and then that allows a narrative space of ingenuity and, and, and tricksterdom and, and certain kinds of anarchic behaviour. That kind of battle with the ink is is still going on in the way that you've described the kind of chaos of plasma. My, I mean, you put it in a I wrote humans are watching the VFX on an IMAX screen because that's basically how she watches. That's how Amy Adams is watching it on this big kind of cinema screen as this chaotic ink or plasma unfolds and, and starts to reform on, on the space. And that's why she kind of puts her hand up to the up to the screen. But 
I just I just thought she's watching it as a, you know it's we always talk about this about it, it's about effects but there's something around the human watching the VFX on this kind of screen the chaos of the plasma um, as you said the liquid that's contained on a screen and the pleasure of that that kind of we, I mean we've done Watchmen and the sort of you know mutating face on Rorschach this sort of um, that seems to be being played out in this in this particular film but I like that idea that that something that we relegate to the history of animation this this trickster relationship between the animator and the animated um, and the desire to control the ink is something that is is kind of still here it's still kind of playing out um, through our engagement with these these kinds of, of of media text so you said all of that wonderful stuff and I went watching VFX on an IMAX screen so there you go <laughs> no I think I but I think there's there's a lot in that you know and I think that the control the attempt to control the ink is the attempt to control the blood it is the kind of it is our attempt to control blood and it is our fear of impure bloodlines. It is about what's referred to as the blood quantum in the kind of racial history of the US. And this does relate, I think, to and, and this is something that I argue in this book, Infinite Ontology, in relation to, to the show Devs, is that, you know, the quantum that we think is going to be the kind of like savior of of everything, basically, is in fact a repetition of, of the blood quantum because in that show it requires the sacrifice here of the kind of the Asian other uh, in order for the sort of quantum to exist as such. So actually the quantum is also kind of like white white humanity still wrestling with its attempts to define itself in contradistinction to everything else that surrounds it, to give itself a kind of a being, an existence, an, an entity, a space, a time that is not contaminated by everything else. It's about kind of like clearing, clearing everything else out of the way. And that kind of myth is still, I still think, sort of being writ large, uh, you know, across these media. Um, <laughs> there was something else that you sort of mentioned, which did get get me get me all excited, Chris, but I've, I think it's slipped from my memory. Maybe it'll come back. I, mean, I did want to talk about tongues, as tongues as the kind of the human, the, the, the tentacle that remains in the human body, the kind of worm, the worm tongue, grim or worm tongue, the, the tentacle that remains in, in the human body and which allows us to kind of language. So even kind of like language is built upon this kind of like inner cephalopod inside the human. So, and we talk about kind of like mother tongues and so on, but actually it's the tongue which is our mother. You know, people shoot their mouths off without thinking about it. Our tongue is in control, not our brain. You know, uh, it is the tentacles. It is the kind of chaos. It is the, the flowing blood. It is the kind of flowing ink. These are the kind of real life forces, but we're, we're so afraid of them that perhaps we even create these media to control them. All media are a kind of attempts to control chaos. Can, can I ask a question about how this relates to, or whether it should relate to practice at all? Um, because I'm struck by what you're saying about this sort of, the, the, the chaotic potential of... of 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 new media of of, dig, of the digital of of the inkiness of the digital image, um, and I'm just thinking through what you're saying because obviously when we talk to practitioners on this podcast, quite a lot of what we're talking about is a narrative of control uh, and meticulous planning, and 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 maths and science and Newtonian. Uh, and Eisen, and Eisenstein, um, I always say Eisenstein because I'm listening to Chris too much. But Einstein uh, sort of relativity and and sort of that human conquest of the image is sort of the 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 story we tell and and it and that story of conquest seems necessary to create these kind of gaseous 
images. Um, so are you saying that our, that practice is kind of irrelevant to, you know, to, to the, what the image can do and its effect it can have on the viewer? And that actually, you know, we're focusing on the hand when really we can focus on, on the ink or... Um, or, or, are you, or would you lament that kind of fastidious, um, you know, mathematical, methodological um, process by which inky imagery is, is created? That's a very good question, Alex. In Arrival, like, it's actually the... When they first go up into the dark contact lens uh, that is the kind of the, the alien spaceship, um, there's this kind of like vertical shot, except for the fact that we can't tell vertical from uh, horizontal in that space because it's kind of like got its own kind of like anti-gravitational twisted logic. When we first see that shot, and there's lots of frames within frames within the film, uh, you know, the opening window, the TV screens and the kind of endless laptops, which are kind of within the American base, the screen of, of the dialogue. But I, I did sort of notice yesterday watching the film uh, that when when they kind of like elevate up into the spaceship, we have this overhead in Verticom's shot and it looks just like a kind of eight or 16 millimeter film frame with the kind of like uh, sort of edges around it. And it has the kind of like beveled sides. So it's sort of slightly curved rather than fully square. And there's a sense of them entering into this kind of like cinematic space. And, and it keeps reminding me of a movie theater, mm -hmm. this space. I sort of half expect to see seats installed in there ready for them and it's architecture you know the architecture of this spaceship is definitely one that's designed to intimidate these people these aliens you know make these people walk fucking miles uh, to actually get to this big screen at the end of this kind of like long corridor Reminds me of the turbine hall in the in the tate uh you know it's very very, very kind of gallery like and and auditorium like nice. yeah yeah, I mean, but it feels like very deliberate. Yeah, let's get them to sort of walk reverentially and slowly to impose this kind of sense, you know. So there's, there's lots of ways in which the, the design, I think, is, is a work in this. But, but there's this sort of sense in which it, it's about this kind of like immersion into cinema. This is about kind of entering into the cinematic. And if you can enter into the cinematic, commune with the cinematic, then perhaps your sense of space and time will, will shift. But I think in relation, maybe responding to Alex in relation to kind of Einstein, you know, what for me I think is is of, is of interest is, is that these, I, I can understand these urges of and for control uh, because they're ones that have been inculcated into me since I was born, basically, uh, as and very specifically a kind of white uh, male in the West. And... And the whole kind of like system, and I hate to sort of say, I hate to generalize in this way, you know, I think a lot of people are attracted towards cinema and filmmaking as a medium because it's glamorous, uh, it's cool, you get to tell people that you're an animator or a filmmaker, and everyone just kind of like thinks you're cool. And I'm definitely kind of envious in some ways of kind of like, you know, f people who get to say that they're filmmakers and so on and so forth. So it carries a lot of cultural capital very literally sort of capital, or not literally, very figuratively capital. And and I wonder that that kind of therefore means it's always going to be, even if sort of deep down and no one likes to admit it, sort of tied up with a sort of uh, desire for a controlled planet, a controlled self, a controlled self-image, uh, a controlled kind of way in which one is understood as powered and empowered and empowering. So it's, it's about kind of racial... Hier uh, sorry, not racial, power, hierarchies and dynamics. There is a racial component to it. And, uh, you know, the control of light, 
I think is is part and parcel of that. We talk about plasma screens as being the control of light. We talk about kind of uh, agriculture as a system of, of, you know, turning light into a tool that humans can use for their own productive purposes rather than being something that they have to respond to. 24-7 permanent illumination and the kind of drive towards us always being at work. Uh, because now we have the light to be at work. You know, these are all sort of parts of controlling light as sort of capitalist logic. So we have this kind of like obsession with the control of light, maybe cinema and the kind of writing with lightning that it is, is, is you know, part of this process, uh, this sort of logic of control. So in non-cinema, I'm arguing really in a lot of ways that filmmaking, when it's out of control, is much more uh, sort of philosophically productive perhaps than when filmmaking is in control and it can even happen within a studio it can happen within a digital studio and so on so it's it's not that those things de facto see the eradication of uh, of chance uh, and uh, you know the contingent but there is this kind of sense in which they do get away from this logic of control and and I think that it, there is this kind of way in which the, this sort of escape from control this is if, if you let go if you just let go don't be so proud don't be so sort of needy of controlling things. Don't be so sort of patriarchal. If you can let go, very, which I think for sort of white men, and I can perhaps can only need only speak for myself, you know, it's something that, that's not as easy as all that just to do because of how cathected I am to kind of like the need for control and so on, uh, which probably makes me a very bad kind of uh, academic in some ways, but all of the same, at least a, a kind of a morally bad academic, but all the same, I'm sort of at, at, in, in a sort of struggle with myself to let go, to not have control, is in some senses a kind of like a need to embrace the kind of the dark, the negative, the necro, the negro, the, um, you know, that which sort of lies on the outside. And rather than fearing the outside, which is what H.P. Lovecraft would tell us to do, you know, Perhaps now, actually, what we need to do is, is to learn to embrace it. It is our only hope. White masculinity, you know, which we see a resurgence in, you know, worldwide, or at least in those areas where there are white men, you know, as kind of like wanting to be in the su supreme position, so white supremacy, white masculinity, Trumpism, and so on and so forth. You know, this is about a kind of a refusal to cede control. But, you know, that control has to be conceded in order for there to be progress. Otherwise, again, I think we're kind of like doomed. But, you know, I think that there's... So for me, oddly enough, it kind of ties in with this kind of like uh, physics logic that, that we get from these discourses around kind of like image creation, image mastery, and so on and so forth. It, it is in some ways the same story kind of being told. There is a kind of fractal component to all of this, that what is happening out in the deep reaches of the dark universe or the dark multiverse is replicated here on our planet, in the quantum level, on the psychological level, on the social level, on the political level. Really interesting. Um, I think we're going to try our, our, um, our audience's patience if we go on too much longer. So uh, we might have to think about how we wrap this up without without simplifying or creating a linear narrative out of all these various uh, threads. So this is going to be one hell of a plot twist, everybody. Um, I don't know how we're going to do it. Uh, Chris, can you help us out? Are there any sort of final areas of the film that we perhaps should cover from your notes that we haven't quite um, touched upon yet um, that we should touch upon, given everything we've said thus far? I mean, I had a few notes around the kind of fog of mystery and, and, um, and uh, I guess, 
I don't know, there's some interesting stuff around Amy Adams's hands and the way that she kind of constructs images. And I was thinking about, um, as I always am, about kind of sand animation and, and live kind of live performance with sand and the way in which you kind of conjure with your fingers and, and um, what Amy Adams's fingers knew. Um, shall we say so a few th things that I mean there's a couple of things we haven't really talked about the soundtrack I guess um, there are a few I mean I don't have much to say other than I, I, I sort of found it particularly you know my first three notes are cerebral reflective contemplation 32 minutes until we see the alien um, so I was a lot of it is sort of the power of the film I felt was was um, through sound I'd not really seen much of Villeneuve's films I think I've only seen Prisoners um, so I was a little bit I mean but it felt very very um, Villeneuvian um, but no I have yeah kind of a few notes around um, the kind of subtlety and the fluidity fluidity of the movement of the heptapods and this kind of relationship to kind of Felix and, and around this idea of them as, as master master animators because they're imbued with this sense of possibility but um, uh, yeah I mean we could we could talk about the about the sound but um, yeah I thought it was a particularly kind of striking both gene generic in the way that sci-fi soundtracks can often be and also particularly evocative when placed in the context of of, um, of this film and I suppose one line that I thought was interesting that the, the daughter says uh, when she's drawing a picture of the parents she says it's just a cartoon, it's not real and that's when my heart broke <laughs> yeah I mean yeah, that's it, it was, it, that line struck me a bit yesterday as well watching it um, and I'm not entirely sure what to make of it. I mean, I did wonder that she's called Hannah, which even though there's a sort of palindromic component to it, it also has a kind of homophonous ring of the hand to it. Uh, but then I was also then got thinking about the hand, the hand Chinese uh, as sort of also being sort of part, part of this sort of strange logic. But um, yeah, I mean, I think the music on the nature of daylight by Max Richter is this kind of like key theme. I think that that's, uh, you know, titularly is telling us, you know, something about kind of lightness and darkness. But, uh, you know, the, the sound, and this is an obvious thing to say, but the sound is kind of used very much to announce the kind of atemporal components of it. I mean, in some ways, I guess, you know, the where the film begins to be interesting, and this is a sort of staple of art house cinema, is... And it's not where the film begins to be interesting, but one of the ways in which the film is interesting is is when the sound and the image uh, desynchronize, and and you know just someone like Godard, you know, is a kind of key, keenly understands that you they can be doing different things at the same time. You can have two different temporalities. Why waste one? Why waste a second medium when you can do this? Which is actually what Donnelly says about the heptapod language that their semasiographic written language has nothing to do with their spoken language and indeed why would you yoke the one to the other it's a waste of a medium and it does get you to think about kind of yeah why do we why do we bother with you know movies that are kind of yoked to synchronized sound basically it's total waste and and the film not much because i guess because of its own place within a kind of capitalist system, can't because it's quite alienating to watch films that don't have synchronized sound and image. Um, you know, all the same, it still pushes it occasionally. Uh, but it is a, a non-cinematic filmmaker like Goddard and many others from all different parts of the world who can make those kinds of films because they can do it from outside of 
the capitalist demands of filmmaking because it's not necessarily expensive when you have an iPhone, uh, as long as you have an iPhone, etc., etc. In order to not that I want to plug an Apple product. When you have a, a phone with camera-enabled <laughs> technology on it, then you know you can make films on cheap and you can experiment and do whatever you want and, and lose control. Whereas the capitalist product has to have control. Oh, we got to even when we diverge from uh, these sort of things, we have to show that we're doing it on purpose. My final thought was about the relationship between, uh, the, I guess, time and fantasy and, and all this. In that, I was I was trying to think through why I found the ending dissatisfying, and 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 what occurred to me was that actually the sort of plot twist ending. One, because it's such... I mean, you were talking about special effects. It's kind of almost an example of, you know, a sort of Jason Mattel narrative special effects. It's it's so rooted to the sort of um, psychodynamics of um, of A to B. Ha-ha, we went that way, but we thought you were going to go that way kind of kind of stuff, which is which kind of helps spectacularize the, the, the linearity of the narrative. So I think there's, there's, a, there's a kind of contradiction in how the film uses its, its plot twist and what it's trying to say about narrative and linearity, um, but in terms of the role of fantasy in all of it, you know, I, I was I was starting I was you know there, there's been lots of writing on sort of the role of fantasy as a as a way of getting us to think in disaccustomed ways about time and and um, Bliss Kara Lim's sort of you know translating time book is is really good on this on the sort of non-Western traditions of time and how by drawing on fantastic narratives one can get spectators into a very interesting place in terms of temporal engagement with imagery but but what arrival seems to do is it to me it offers two two kinds of fantasy and, and only really presents one of them as a fantasy it offers memory a sort of dream of the past and it offers a sort of fantasy of the future and its plot twist is that the things you thought weren't real um, or the things you thought are real uh, aren't real but will be real and, and really, it doesn't think of a way to do other anything else with fantasy because it seems to suggest that fantasy is only ever rooted to that kind of logical time structure of you know to, as a force to help you think through time as a logic force. You know, fantasies of the future and fantasies of the past. This is you know very Freudian. Keep us in that stage of ideation of of, of we are. I am going over here, and I've just been there. Therefore, I am here, and that is that is the temporal meaning I'll take from the situation. When actually, and I've written about this in my own work a little bit, but nowhere in relation to, to any of the things we've been talking about today, fantasy can just make us rooted in, in duration. And, and it can, you know, when a baby screams because it thinks its mother's never going to come back because she's been out of the room for two minutes fetching a bottle, that is a fantastical relationship with time that is just rooted in, in being in the moment and is absolutely rooted in the helplessness of subjectivity. But the film never, ever really seems to get there. And part of it's because it doesn't want us to do that kind of fantasizing. What it wants us to do is kind of uh, watch the movie once and then watch it again and spot all the bits where it was hinting at it. In the same way that Amy Adams ends up living her life. She knows what's coming so can appreciate it better. I like it. I think that's very good. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, the only thing I would say then is... is um, yeah, the the movie is too is too controlling. I guess ultimately, the movie uh, wants to construct its own memories. I mean, it's quite an enjoyable film to watch. I like it. I liked it yesterday for the nth time watching it. Um, but you know, that doesn't mean it doesn't have limitations. I suppose what I want to say is that if it's about fantasies of past and future, but not of the present, um, 
then in some ways there is a when the baby cries because the mother is away the present is horrifying to us perhaps instinctively um and and therefore it's really you know we can't stand duration in films because it's like oh this is too much i hate it and it's why we reach for our phones every time we're a little bit worried that the present is sort of too much getting it's too oppressive because the present and this simple kind of play of words made by Jean-Luc Nancy is pre-sense um you know it's uh, it doesn't make any sense to us it's chaotic um it kind of perhaps carries fractally the full weight of all time uh, but we need to pass time out into these categories we need to bottle it past present future and that's the problem with arrival ultimately is is far too logical it's far too logical in terms of its division between what's real what's not real the past present the future and actually if it really wanted to kind of terrify us uh or give us a sense at the very least perhaps even a funny and enjoyable sense of uh chaos then it would do more work to kind of like undo those sort of quite rigorous categories and to get us into the kind of the present where perhaps fantasy and reality don't merge because that moment when i think that my mother might be dead i start crying because i think it's real i can't tell the difference between that fantasy and reality and that's kind of the the crucial component of it is is the inability to tell that the fantasy is a fantasy I think on a note on a note of of the um the unable to to um experience full duration we perhaps should wrap up um our conversation um William it's been one of and I mean this is an absolute compliment one of the most intense conversations I've had in the last six months uh and 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 all for it because I've got so much uh swimming in my brain to think about after this um and I hope listeners do too I'm sure they will uh, having having railed against uh capitalist agendas I'm now going to give you a moment to plug uh anything you'd like to plug so the book is available and able to purchase various various independent as well as other booksellers it was mentioned. People can go back to the beginning of the podcast. <laughs> it's very arrival, very arrival. Okay, terrific. Um, Chris, thanks again um, for, for joining me on these episodes. William, thank you for joining thank us. Thank you both very much. Sorry for going on too long, but wonderful to talk to you. That's, that, that's all right. It's either all going out in all its glory or or listeners missed some treats there. Um, um, uh, you can, of course, uh, find us on fantasy-animation.org as well as on social media at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Reddit. I've never felt more uncomfortable saying these words, but fine. Uh, you can also email us at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research at gmail.com if you have anything you'd like to add to a conversation about squids, capitalism, uh, psychology, uh, the digital schizoid others anything else uh, we'd love to hear from you otherwise that's been us for another episode and we'll see you next time bye